Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Pema Levy, a reporter with Mother Jones Magazine, who discusses the legal fight now underway to restore access to Mifepristone, the drug approved 23 years ago that's used in more than half of all U.S. abortions. April Merlot of Rainforest Action Network, who reviews findings of the Banking on Climate Chaos 2023 report that found globally banks invested a staggering $673 billion in fossil fuel projects in 2022. And Riley Hawk with Climate Defiance, who talks about her new group's mission, the importance of direct action for the climate movement, and their planned blockade of the White House Correspondents' Dinner on April 29th. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. In early April, the Myanmar military launched airstrikes hitting opposition-held Zaigain province, killing more than 100 people, including 30 children. The army defended the attack as targeting terrorists from the Rebel People's Defense Forces. The United States and the European Union condemned the attack, which also destroyed buildings and roadways. Myanmar's opposition National Unity Government called the incident a war crime and accused the junta of committing a terror campaign against civilians. Responding to the attack, Amnesty International called for governments around the world to block the supply of aviation fuel to the Myanmar military. Monsi Ferrer of Amnesty International said unlawful air attacks that kill and injure civilians and also destroy homes are a trademark of the Myanmar military. Foreign Policy magazine observes that pressure on Myanmar's junta and the global effort to restore democracy in the Southeast Asia nation has faltered since Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year. A watchdog group's complaint filed with the Internal Revenue Service seeks to revoke the nonprofit status of conservative groups affiliated with right-wing legal activist Leonard Leo, a one-time unpaid advisor to former President Donald Trump, recommending Supreme Court nominees. The complaint filed by the Campaign for Accountability alleged Leo misused $73 million received from conservative groups to fund his for-profit political consulting business. In early March, Politico reported that Leo, a longtime Federalist Society legal advisor, saw his personal wealth skyrocket after the 2016 presidential election, as evidenced by his purchase of two vacation homes in coastal Maine worth some $5 million. During the 2016 presidential campaign, Leo compiled a list of 11 potential Supreme Court nominees for Trump that included current right-wing justices Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. Politico said spending by Leo's aligned nonprofits for his for-profit business demonstrates the extent to which his money-raising benefited his own bottom line. Michelle Cuppersith of Campaign for Accountability said that Leo was using the nonprofits to launder money in a tax-exempt way, which was later allocated to two private entities. 
The Internal Revenue Service and Treasury Department officials recently announced that they will use $80 billion in new funding from the Inflation Reduction Act to recover unpaid taxes from wealthy earners and complex businesses. The IRS will restore the level of audits conducted on those taxpayers from more than a decade ago, as well as improve customer service for middle and low-income tax filers. The Biden administration is restoring the capacity of the IRS to increase audit rates on the wealthiest Americans and corporations to 2011 levels before the Republican-controlled Congress imposed five consecutive years of major cuts to the agency's budget. The IRS also plans to purchase state-of-the-art technology and begin developing free online tax filing software that will dramatically change the way most Americans file their taxes ending years of domination by for-profit tax preparation companies. But a new IRS report cautioned that current funding alone would not be enough to modernize the agency's technology and improve customer service and enforcement. Future budget cuts or small increases that do not keep pace with inflation, the agency warned, would derail the planned transformation of the IRS. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. A ruling on April 7th by extremist right-wing U.S. District Judge Matthew Kaczmarek, sought to ban the abortion drug mifepristone 23 years after it was approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. The Texas judge, a Trump appointee, wrote that the FDA exceeded its authority in approving mifepristone that today is used in more than half of all U.S. abortions. Hours later, a conflicting ruling from a Washington state federal judge ordered U.S. authorities not to restrict access to the abortion drug in 17 Democratic-led states that sued over the issue. Later, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit granted the U.S. Department of Justice's emergency request to put Judge Kaczmarek's ruling on hold, but the three-judge panel determined that other parts of Kaczmarek's ruling, which suspends changes the FDA later made to Mifepristone's approved use, and Halt's distribution of the drug by mail, could still go into effect on April 15th. The U.S. Supreme Court then granted a request from the Justice Department for an administrative stay, which preserves the status quo until the end of the day, April 19th, as the High Court considers its request to intervene in the court battle. Your reporter spoke with Pema Levy, a reporter with Mother Jones magazine, who examines Judge Kaczmarek's ruling, determining it was based on his anti-abortion ideology rather than science, in the most significant case involving abortion rights since the Supreme Court overturned the 1973 landmark Roe v. Wade decision last June. The judge uses research, and you can't see me, but I'm using, you know, scare quotes here, <laughs> like research, not real research, not scientific research, um, done by anti-abortion groups to claim that medication abortion is deeply physically and psychologically damaging and that women and pregnant people who take these abortion drugs are just 
changed, like the vast majority of them are changed and they can't sue for themselves. They're just shells of their former self. And this is just not true. Uh, the American Psychological Association, um, which is the largest group of psychologists in the country, finds the opposite. They survey all of the literature from this country and around the world, and they say that what actually causes harm to women and to pregnant people is not having access to abortion, not the ability to get an abortion if they want to. One of the studies that he cites to sort of back up this fake characterization of, of the what uh, medication abortion does is a study that claims that 83% of women report that chemical abortion changed them, and 70% of those women report a negative change. And when you look at what this study is, it is a study of anonymous comments on a website, and the website is for people who have reproductive grief. I can't think of like a less scientific study, <laughs> right? It's like if you had a website about people who love puppies, and then you did a survey of anonymous comments, and you said like 100% of people love puppies. Like, no, it's just the people that want to post on this website love puppies. That's what they're going to this website for. So it's hard to even stress how bonkers it is that you know, a federal judge is citing this as like actual scientific data when it's just anonymous comments on a blog. Um, I feel like everyone knows that anonymous comments on a blog are not science. Yeah, it's like these um, on online polls, which are just bogus and dubious. Yes, it's it's really, and I mean, honestly, like the fact that that's what they have, it really just underscores the fact that this is not a ruling based in any sort of science. And that kind of underscores the whole point of our administrative system where we have the FDA is the agency that is up to the task of determining the science. They have scientists working with them. They have experts. They're going to review all the studies. They're going to do their homework, and they're going to make a scientific determination. And it makes sense that that is the body that approves drugs and not an ideologically anti-abortion federal judge who comes in and, and cites comments on a blog. That's, that's not how we should be making policy and approving drugs. Well, Pema, it's pretty clear that the U.S. Supreme Court and its extremist right-wing supermajority will likely get to hear this case and make a decision on it. I don't know enough about the legal cases or the legal precedents here to, to make any real assessment of how this extremist court may judge on this. But do you have any guesses, any predictions about oh how gosh. this court might move on this uh, extremely upending decision by this Texas judge? I mean, I, I think this is, I'm really torn about this. I think that there are certainly six votes on this court, the six, three, you know, conservative majority. I think there are six justices on this court that would like to ban Um And certainly five who I think really want to do it, uh, you know, right away. Um, on the other hand, this is a shockingly bad ruling. It's shockingly flouts the law. It flouts standing doctrine, as we've discussed. It is um, a really big deal to the pharmaceutical industry, and the court doesn't really like to go against big industries like that. Um, this is a very you know, pro-business court in a lot of ways as well. Um, so I think that this will probably be conflicting to some justices who think, I hate abortion, but I don't want to you know, undermine uh, you know, big corporations. Uh, I do think one thing that the court could do to basically reassure 
the pharmaceutical industry while also achieving their goal of making it very difficult to obtain an abortion in this country is to basically carve out abortion drugs as this sort of like different cohort and basically say like, normally you wouldn't have standing. Normally you can't overrule the FDA, but when it comes to abortion, (laughs) right, when it comes to our, you know, religious beliefs, all of this stuff, you can have this sort of like carve out where like judges can have a say. Um, It's certainly not ideologically consistent or one that makes any sense. Um, It's certainly a loophole that you could drive a truck through because there are lots of people who also think, who also have, you know, religious objections to um, HIV prevention drugs, for example. So I'm not saying that that would actually cabin the chaos here, but I could see a world in which the Supreme Court finds a way to uphold at least a lot of this ruling while also trying to reassure the pharmaceutical industry that, you know, they can invest in drugs and vaccines and not have them taken off the market, you know, whenever a federal judge feels like it. But we shall see. That was Pema Levy, a reporter with Mother Jones magazine. Find a link to her article titled The Shocking Lack of Science in the Ruling Banning a Common Safe Abortion Drug and Related Commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. For the past 14 years, Rainforest Action Network has released an annual report assessing bank investments in fossil fuel projects. Over the past eight years, the group, in collaboration with seven other environmental and climate organizations, has estimated how much more dirty energy has been funded since the 2015 Paris Climate Accords, designed to reduce the carbon pollution that's overheating the planet. This latest report looks at the world's 60 largest banks, which have invested a total of $5.5 trillion over the past seven years. It documents investments by the leading lender, J.P. Morgan Chase, and three other big U.S. banks, Citibank, Wells Fargo, and Bank of America. Then it tracks 3,000 fossil fuel companies to understand where the investments have been made. The report, titled Banking on Climate Chaos 2023, was endorsed by 600 organizations in 75 countries, making it the benchmark for data and action on this critical issue. One salient fact is that globally, investments in dirty energy projects dropped 16% from 2021 to 2022, but that still amounted to a staggering $673 billion. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with April Merlot, research manager with Rainforest Action Network and lead author of this year's report, who interprets what this latest data could mean. You know, I think it's going to take us a little while to fully understand the picture of what's going on with these finance numbers. The way I've been looking at it is that financing for fossil fuels dropped in 2020 because 2020 was a topsy-turvy year. There was kind of a big rebound in 2021, making up for lost time in 2020. And then what we see now, I think, is a sort of leveling out. And I think that this is a dip in fossil fuel financing rather than the beginning of a long-term downward trend. And there are a couple reasons I think that's the case. One has to do with just the state of the energy markets last year. So fossil fuel companies made $4 trillion worth of profits. 
coming out of the Russian invasion of the Ukraine and the conflict there really threw energy markets into disarray and drove prices really high, which I think really negatively impacted people, particularly in the global south, poor people, working people trying to get access to energy. But those profits flowed into the pockets of fossil fuel companies and their shareholders. And that, I think, changed the calculation for fossil fuel companies in terms of what they were doing to seek capital, right? Their decisions about entering capital markets. So, for example, we've got a couple of really big oil companies like ExxonMobil that have typically borrowed in the billions of dollars every year since 2016 actually just sat out the market, borrowed zero last year. So that, I think, accounts for part of it, is that their fossil fuel companies just were flush with cash and didn't need to borrow. Ironically, I think that could set them up to do a lot more borrowing, and particularly because we see signs that they are expanding, right? That when they're flush with cash, they don't seem like they're plowing that money into decarbonizing or to shifting away from fossil fuels, but actually doubling down on fossil fuels. So the other piece that I would say besides fossil fuel profits that's driving that shift in lending is the dynamics within the oil and gas industry in terms of their cycles of investment and decision-making and exploration. And so we actually anticipate that 2024 is going to be a really significant year for uh, new investments in fossil fuels, and that's based on analysis of data from the fossil fuel industry themselves. So really looking at pretty significant new projects coming online in 2023 and 2024. So my suspicion is that the financing is going to mirror that. And then generally, I think you know, markets were just a little bit unusual last year. The bond market didn't act like they normally do when interest rates rise. So all in all, I think we see it as profits and geopolitical conditions rather than bank policies. So if banks had made really strong climate commitments and were decreasing their fossil fuel financing, I would actually expect to see an even bigger drop, and I'd expect to see a bigger drop across the board, across a range of different banks. And that's not what we're seeing. We're not seeing drops in financing that could be explained by bank policies, because banks just don't have rigorous enough policies to exclude financing for even companies that are expanding fossil fuels. April Merlot, I know they made a ton of money last year, but $4 trillion, really? So these are their news reports. This is not data that I collected myself. Um, Occidental Petroleum Company is one that I like to point out that typically has borrowed $11 billion a year, borrowed nothing last year, and had a 721% increase in profits between 2021 and 2022. And look, these are companies that know that they're facing a long-term decline, right? They know that the product that they're selling is burning the planet up. They've known that for a long time. And it looks to me like they're squeezing profits out of it while they can. They're seizing this moment, this sort of conflict moment, squeezing some profits out of it before the inevitable happens. And there's not really any good reason that banks should be supporting companies doing that. I think really just revealed the extent to which fossil fuels don't provide energy security, that this is a real opportunity. And leaders in the Ukraine, for example, are calling for transition to renewables, right? This is a real opportunity for a people-centered energy transition. How do groups fighting different fossil fuel projects use these annual reports? 
we've seen a really significant increase in interest and in, from folks campaigning around the financial decisions that banks and other financial institutions are making uh, with our money, right? And I think we see an increase in activism around pensions, for example. So there's the Vanguard SOS campaign. And we trust our banks to take care of our money, to evaluate risks into the future. And climate change is the risk of the century, right? It's the risk of the next couple centuries. And banks really have a lot more work to do taking account of that risk and not contributing more to it. That was April Merlot, Research Manager with the Rainforest Action Network. Find a link to the Banking on Climate Chaos 2023 report and related information by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Climate Defiance, a new youth-led group dedicated to confronting the climate crisis, was launched in March with support from Bill McKibben, noted author, environmentalist, and co-founder of the International Climate Action Group 350.org. The grassroots organizing collective is employing peaceful, nonviolent direct action tactics to focus public attention on the urgent fight to dramatically reduce and eventually end the use of fossil fuels, the largest contributor to global climate change. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the scientific group assembled by the United Nations, warned in its latest report that even if every country in the world delivers on its current climate pledges, that's probably not enough to avoid the worst impacts of climate change causing irreversible changes to some ecosystems around the world which would be catastrophic for the people and wildlife that depend on them. Your reporter spoke with Riley Haught, an action organizer with Climate Defiance, who talks about the need to hold President Biden accountable for his broken promise to stop all fossil fuel drilling on federal lands, the importance of nonviolent civil disobedience for the climate movement, and their group's planned blockade of the White House Correspondents' Dinner on April 29th. Climate Defiance, as you mentioned, is a new youth-led group, and we are focused on using nonviolent direct action to confront the climate crisis and to end extraction on public lands. So we are demanding that Biden end fossil fuel extraction on federal lands and waters, and that is something he promised to do when he was running for president and has failed to deliver on. He has actually signed over 200 more oil and gas leases on federal lands than Trump had at this point in his presidency. And that is just incompatible with a livable, survivable future for young people. Um, You know, we have the most to lose and we also have the most to give in this fight. So, yeah, super excited. We are taking it to the White House Correspondents' Dinner on April 29th and shutting it down. On your website, you talk about the fact that petitions and social media posts won't effectively address the climate crisis and that there's an urgent need for direct action now through nonviolent civil disobedience, disrupting business as usual. You know, it harkens back to uh, what uh, Mario Savio said during the free speech movement in Berkeley 
that we have to throw our bodies in the gears to stop the machine. Absolutely. I mean, direct action is is putting the state in in a double bind in a sense, you know, either they can allow the disruption to continue or um, most often they like to utilize um, violence or or other tactics to separate us up or um, in the end, driving up more support for the cause um, because people will see it no matter which one they do, whether whether we are blockading the correspondence center for hours and hours or the police come in and decide to try to physically remove people who are, you know, utilizing our First Amendment rights to peacefully assemble. Um, people are going to see it. And I think right now that's what we need. We need people to see it. We need people to wake up and and like hear what is going on because I think our our choice of using the correspondence center as well is really strategic because mainstream media outlets are also being paid by the same corporations that are paying off our politicians to not act with the urgency that the climate crisis deserves. And so um, I think activists in general need to start moving with with a sense of urgency um, because signing on to projects that are 30 years long already puts us past a goal of net zero by 2050 that the Biden administration loves to tout. Um, And we need to put the fire under him to to actually commit to his word and to do what he says he's going to do. So, yeah. Tell us why your group has uh, chosen the White House Correspondents' Dinner as a target for a symbolic blockade in order to draw attention to the climate crisis. Yeah, so I think, uh, as I mentioned, I think this is a really strategic choice and target because, one, uh, you know, President Biden will be there, Vice President Harris will be there, um, and most uh, of the mainstream media outlets will also be in attendance. And literally every single person I just named is not acting with the urgency that the climate crisis deserved. And they're going to go have a fancy dinner and celebrate themselves and talk about the importance of the freedom of the press. But it doesn't feel very free when you look at the money and you follow the money and you recognize that it seems like all of these people are in the pockets of fossil fuel execs. And if if we're going to actually act with uh, honesty and character around climate change, that is just simply incompatible. Um, and to continue to sign on to new projects is incompatible with uh, a vision of a future that's sustainable and healthy for for everybody, not just, you know, the, the people who can wine and dine themselves in D.C. So, yeah, that's that's why we're taking it to the Correspondence Center on April 29th. That was Riley Hawk, an action organizer with Climate Defiance. Learn more about the group and its planned blockade of the White House Correspondence Dinner on April 29th by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org 
where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WDRT in Viroqua, Wisconsin, KKFI in Kansas City, Missouri, WLSL in St. Leo, Florida, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.